Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again flying this ship solo, as we go further into our exploration of the elites, our second branch of political horror of the body politic. And uh, we're getting into our second double feature film review as we talk about two 1980s. Uh, maybe, um, maybe one is an occult classic, but I think it's pretty close. Um, simply because of the director, but uh, we'll call them two cult classics from the 1980s uh, as we talk about The Dead Zone and They Live. Now, I think it's important to note that I didn't call the second branch of the body politic uh, politicians because I don't think I don't think that, that is the, the way that the body politic keeps its power and creates its terror is solely through politicians. It's through the power elite. And meaning, meaning that it's more than just it's more than just uh, political figures that are sort of um, that are sort of representing the body politic. If you'll remember, uh, back in the first episode when we kind of defined what the when we defined what the body politic is and what it does and how it functions, one of the things that we mentioned was how the body politic has various representatives, right? That. It is sort of it's this big idea that occasionally, not occasionally, it's this big idea that people run into various branches of it, various pieces of it that are there to um, that are there to create. Um, and in, in in the case of this particular series, they're there to create horror. But uh, I think the you know overall to kind of create resistance for our protagonists in any particular story, it's not one thing it's many things that are sort of it's a, it's a creature with many um, tentacles with many arms basically and one of those arms is the elite and meaning here that so for these two movies for the dead zone we are covering obviously um in this particular movie an actual um singular po- uh, politician who um is uh we'll get into the details of it. we're covering a single politician who is off the rails but in They Live, we're going to be talking about more of a more of a system of people who are part of the upper crust, who are part of the decision making, policy making, um, part of the money making uh, sector of of the of humanity, um, and they have you know out, outsized influence, probably even more so than um, more so than even any singular politician, right? So we're covering how we're talking about how is how the um, you know the how politics how politics in business and um, you know capitalism and other you know economic economic systems all sort of work as a as work together in harmony to create the conditions uh, to you know for the body politic to stay in power that's really what we're talking about here and why um, the the terms of the elite for this second branch is more accurate than just calling it politicians. But let's get into it just like last time. Let's get a little background info for both movies. Uh, first up, The Dead Zone from 1983, directed by the great David Cronenberg, Canadian, and written by the great Stephen King, not from Canada, um, and Jeffrey Boehm. Um, the, <clears throat> obviously, the original novel is uh, from Stephen King, and uh, Stephen King and Jeffrey Boehm uh, helped adapt it uh, for uh, adapted to a screenplay. Um, this is one of, this is one of, um, after Carrie, um, this is one of Stephen King's most popular books, uh, The Dead Zone. This is, and it really, it does kind of usher in the period wherein, um, wherein a lot of big name directors were attached to, ended up being, ended up directing, uh, Stephen King adaptations, or at the very least were attached to Stephen King adaptations. So, um, you know, obviously Carrie comes first, but... Uh, the Dead Zone is like the next sort of big, um, the next like big uh, pop culture crossover that leads to many more, um, many more Stephen King adaptations uh, coming in the '80s, and then um, you know uh, all the miniseries adaptations in the '90s. Uh, kind of you can kind of trace it back to the popularity of The Dead Zone. Um, so once again, David Cronenberg's director, Stephen King's the writer of the book, and Stephen King and Jeffrey Boehm uh, adapt the screenplay. Uh, this stars Christopher Walken as Johnny Smith, uh, Brooke Adams as Sarah Bracknell, Tom Skerritt as Sheriff Bannerman, Herbert Lom as Dr. Sam Wiesak or Wiesak. Um, I can't 100% remember how they pronounced it. I think it was Wiesak, actually. 
uh, Anthony Zerbe as Roger Stewart, uh, Nicholas Campbell as Frank Dodd, and of course the great Martin Sheen as Senator Greg Stilson, or I guess uh, I guess he's still a congressman at this point, but wants to be Senator Greg Stilson. Um, <clears throat> one of the one of the most fascinating things about this are some of the some of the people uh, tied to. Uh, tied to the various roles in particular the role of johnny smith and some of them make sense and you could kind of imagine the movie i i think christopher walken is great and i think his very um i think his very unique look really adds to um really adds to uh this the sort of i i don't, I don't know exactly how to put it like the sort of um the the the, the sort of personal terror that Johnny Smith is uh, is going through, you know, from his accident all the way up to uh, his uh, his psychic powers. Um, something about the way Christopher Walken looks just sort of fits. But when you hear, I'm going to pull this up real quickly, so you're going to hear me typing, which is always fantastic to hear on a podcast. Um, but some of the people that were involved, potentially, were going to take the role of Johnny Smith are absolutely fascinating. Okay, I paused. It just uh, you didn't really didn't hear me typing uh, the entire time there. But so <clears throat> so obviously, okay, Christopher Walken is playing our our lead character Johnny Smith here. But Stephen King's first choice for the part of of of, uh, of Johnny Smith will blow your mind, and I really cannot picture this particular movie. Uh, I'll give you two seconds to to consider this before I drop the bombshell on you. So Stephen King's first choice was, of course, Bill Murray. That blows my mind. 100% entirely and completely blows my mind. Um, this movie, I cannot picture, even with... I know Bill Murray has more more range than maybe we uh, we give him credit for, especially we've seen him in his later years um, take on some more dramatic roles. But I really can't... I just cannot picture an early 1980s Bill Murray taking on this particular role. Um, not to say that he would have been bad or anything. It just, it just doesn't really like it. That just really doesn't add up and make sense. Um, some of the others that were considered, and these ones make much more sense. Um, some of the other guys that were considered for this particular role: uh, Al Pacino, Richard Gere, Robert De Niro. You can you can imagine, you can imagine this movie being being made with them, um, and you can imagine how that movie would go off with. You know, with um, Pacino or De Niro, I think Gear for me is the hardest one to kind of imagine at this point in time. Um, again, not because he's not because all, all all these people are tremendous actors. I just something about the again the way that Christopher Walken looks, the physicality that he brings to it um, is just a, such a unique energy and like his sort of unique aura and energy is just something that I'm not sure the others could bring exactly the same way, especially Richard Gear. Um, but again, the Bill Murray one just kind of blows my mind. Um, Cronenberg's choice was one of his guys, Nicholas Campbell, who plays Frank Dodd. Frank is the, uh, deputy for Tom Skerritt's, uh, deputy and, uh, our, our Castle Rock serial, serial killer, as it turns out. Um, uh, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Campbell, uh, one of Cronenberg's guys, I think he was in The Brood and The Brood prior to this, I want to say he was in another Cronenberg after this. I can't remember can't remember what exactly um nicholas campbell big time guy in canada he was like on a on various tv shows in canada for years um but like a well-known commodity and something some of the cronenberg had worked with previously so you can imagine why and i thought nicholas campbell was very good as uh, as frank dodd uh <clears throat> and you could and i honestly could even see that movie um being that particular movie being made with nicholas campbell as our star um it's a very different again a very very different movie, much much closer to uh, David Cronenberg's earlier stuff. But um, but I could see that movie getting made. I could see how that movie would get made as well. I just really have trouble picturing the one with Bill Murray as Johnny Smith. So um, so anyway, I'll get <laughs> get into some of the rest of the stuff here. Um, some of the background information here. Uh, uh, you know what? Actually, let's. I'll, I'll dive into. Um, you know, I'll just dive into the background information for um, for They Live Now, mostly because I just kind of realized I'm going to get into some of the trivia and spoilery stuff here in a little bit uh, for both movies anyway. Um, so, oh, and, and spoiler alert for two movies that are, you know, nearly 40 plus years old. 
Um, you're going to be hearing quite a bit, quite a bit of plot details and stuff about them. So, uh, sorry in advance. All right. So, 1988's They Live. Um, I think actually, as I say, directed by John Carpenter. I think it's one of those ones that's John Carpenter's They Live. Um, but uh, directed by by the great John Carpenter, written by Ray Nelson and John Carpenter. I think I'm pretty sure um, Carpenter is writing under the pseudonym Frank Armitage. I can't remember. I feel like this is an homage to something, but I, I'm not like 100% sure on that. But I, I, but if you're watching the movie, you'll see like it's written by Ray Nelson and Frank Armitage, and Frank Armitage is John Carpenter. Um, it's something he would do. Um, you know, he would sometimes produce scores. Um, you know, he does his own music as well. He is, um, you know, if, if anyone is unfamiliar with this, he is, uh, he created the, the Halloween, um, the, the Halloween theme that is maybe, maybe the most, maybe the most famous, certainly the most famous piece of horror movie uh, music, but certainly one of the most famous pieces of movie music of all time um, is the, you know, the Halloween theme. And as I think I mentioned last month in our, in our sci-fi September, um, you could I, I don't know necessarily if he if he you can credit him with creating the synthwave um genre of music, but he was certainly maybe the first and most prolific um prolific person to um to make that type of music, to make the the first version of that type of electronic music um back in the late seventies and, and early eighties, um and obviously through the eighties, and something that is synonymous now with with John Carpenter is that style of music. So he's, you know, if not the creator, um, certainly one of the, one of the landmark, you know, he's, he's on the Mount Rushmore for, for synthwave, uh, synthwave musicians. That's for sure. Um, Roddy Piper is our, uh, main character, uh, Nada, the rowdy one, the late great rowdy Roddy Piper, Keith David as Frank. We have, uh, Meg Foster, the smoky eyed Meg Foster, the, maybe the, Maybe some of the maybe some of the most unmistakable eyes in, in the history of Hollywood. Um, even when Meg Foster is doing stuff in heavy makeup, like her eyes are unbelievably this smoky blue color. It, it's just they they look her eyes look fake. Her eyeballs look fake. But anyway, Meg Foster playing Holly, our uh, our TV station producer. We have George Buck Flower, a, uh, a carpenter regular, playing a drifter, just called drifter. Um, Raymond St. Jacques playing the street preacher, our blind street preacher, and Peter Jason plays our, um, our homeless, um, I don't know what you, what you call him, I guess our, our church homeless outreach guy slash, um, slash a resistance fighter, resistance fighter leader, um, Gilbert. Um, so very typical of most John Carpenter movies, uh, a very lean, mean cast here. We don't really spend a, a lot of time with too many other people outside of this main main cast of characters. And realistically speaking, we only spend we spend most of our times with Roddy Piper, Keith David, Meg Foster, and Peter Jason are, are really the ones that we spend the most amount of time with. Um, of note, I do love this part. Um, I did not know this about this movie until uh, I consulted the uh, IMDb Tribune uh, for a little bit of information. That uh, for the for the homeless camp, John Carpenter brought in actual um, homeless or unhoused people, uh, you know, however you want to think about it, um, into the production for a lot of the scenes uh, to play some of the characters. And in addition to, um, you know, giving them paychecks, also like, you know, fed them in the same way that you would feed like the regular uh, cast and crew of, of, of a movie production. So, you know, pretty cool. Um, definitely one of those things that whenever... Whatever John Carpenter, John Carpenter has like a very particular reputation, and some of it's probably, some of it's definitely probably warranted. He is kind of a, a grumpy old man, but then you hear from, you hear stories like that, and you hear stories from other people that know him well that also paint him as like the one of the most generous and nice people on the planet. So it's just kind of an interesting. He's a very very interesting character uh, in that way. Um, so, <clears throat> and and another thing that I, I do love about this um, that. I, I love that, you know, knowing knowing what Carpenter wanted out of this particular um, character for Nada, um, you know, someone rugged, someone who could fight or whatever. I love that he saw Rowdy Piper in WrestleMania, would have been like the second WrestleMania maybe, 
third WrestleMania back in the 1987, so like WrestleMania 3 or whatever, he saw Roddy Piper in that, saw his physicality, saw his performance, and thought, that's exactly who I want to cast. I just, I, I, I it's one of those things like, you know, last year when Chum and I did our wrestling episode, we kind of talked about how it really is sort of a training ground for certain people to try to explore, uh, try to explore other realms of the entertainment industry. And, you know, if, if you kind of, if you really do shine in wrestling, there's a good chance that you could, you know, you could take that sort of those lessons learned and turn yourself into a movie, movie star or TV star, you know, look at the rock, look at John Cena, you know, but you could even look at some, some lesser known, um, you know, some people who aren't global megastars uh, necessarily also got their start uh, in wrestling uh, doing those kind of performances. So I do think it's kind of funny how really since pretty much since the pretty much since its inception um well maybe since the more modernization of wrestling in like the 50s and 60s um that it really is sort of this doorway to uh doorway to more opportunities in the entertainment industry and i love that you know roddy piper such a great character like an all-time wwf character um gets to be one of the all-time characters in an all-time cult classic movie fucking just absolutely fucking love that all right, so let's get into it. We're going to format it the exact same way that we did uh, the last episode, our last double feature review. Get into some, We're going to get into some surprises, some similarities, some differences, and then uh, finish out with some missed opportunities. So <clears throat> start with some surprises. Uh, let's start with The Dead Zone. I Again, this is a, a movie I've seen before, but it's been a few years since I'd last seen it. Um, I was just kind of taken aback at how not terribly violent this movie is. And I do wonder if this is, I do wonder if this is directly, um, directly because this would have been Cronenberg's first, not not his first American production exactly, but certainly like his first big, um, the first big opportunity to have uh, to have a movie in American cinemas with a bunch of names attached to it with you know this is a Stephen King adaptation this is starring Christopher Walken like there are names attached to this Tom Skerritt would have been a big would have been a, a pretty big star at that point in time there are a lot of uh, Brooke Adams for that matter would have, would have been a, a pretty big star at that point in time there are just a lot of names attached to this that you know when you go back and look at um, video, even Videodrome, which actually they would have been the same year. Um, uh, you know, James Woods for sure is the big name. Um, but you know, D- Debbie Harry, not a big name in acting at that point in time. Um, you know, obviously a big name musician, but like a, you, but you go, you start to go back into, um, Cronenberg's stuff from the seventies and, and before this movie, the names attached to them aren't necessarily that big at all. And, um, you know, and and the the material isn't being adapted from someone who's as popular as Stephen King. So I kind of I do kind of wonder if this movie, which was adapted from a book with quite a bit of violence, um, I, I just wonder if that was kind of like a studio thing that not that not to make it like chaste and like PG or something, but to like kind of tone down some of the violence. Um, so I just I just kind of wonder if that is possibly the reason why. And, you know, and this goes into my kind of the thing that like you would. My second point here that when you think about David Cronenberg, you think about like this grotesque body horror and there is just a complete lack of body horror. There is some really there is a couple of like really horrific moments. Um, Once we you know, once Johnny, um, you know, has his psychic vision of who the um, of who the. the Castle Rock Killer is. I think that's what they call him. I can't remember if they. Yeah, I think it's just the Castle Rock Killer. Um, but once he has his vision, and we see that, um, you know, he's uh, he's there with the young lady. Um, I think her name is uh, Alma or something like that. Um, and then we we realize that it's uh, that it's the deputy Frank Dodd. And then we get the uh, you know we get the scene where we're in his house trying to find him, and like the way Frank Dodd commits suicide is actually quite gruesome i mean we don't like we don't see it but like it's so it's implied the way he sets up the scissors and he just essentially jams his head <laughs> jams his head through uh through the pair of scissors that he used to uh to kill the woman earlier um i mean it's it's definitely gruesome but it's not gruesome in the way that 
you would expect from David Cronenberg. Um, so again, while we have we have some moments we have some moments of violence, and obviously people get shot and stuff in this in this movie, and there are some visions of there are some visions of violence, um, which were which were really cool. Like actually, that's that's something that surprised me here too. Some of the visions were really despite not despite not getting into the body horror stuff that um that Cronenberg's so famous for we still got some of the really cool practical effects and visuals that Cronenberg is famous for like when we have the the first vision of the uh, of the nurses house burning down and the little girl dying in it the way that you know Johnny's trapped in the vision with uh with the girl and the house is burning like we see the the fishbowl boil and erupt all the stuff melting on the shelves and just the kind of the sheer terror of being caught in like this raging fire, um, you know that was really cool. Like it, it was a it was a really cool moment, a really cool practical effects moment. Um, in fact, like they definitely set Christopher Walken on fire while he's sitting in that bed. Um, the sweat that's on his face is actually on his face and his body is actually like a flame retardant gel. Um, it just happens to look like sweat, kind of really amped up the the scene for that. Um, and then, you know, when we, the kids dropping through the ice, um, you know, when, uh, later on when he's tutoring, uh, Roger Stewart's son, uh, what was it, Craig Stewart, Simon, Craig Stewart, I think, um, when he's, tu- when he's, but when he's tutoring the kid and he has the vision of his hockey team falling through the ice, um, that, that was one of those like really cool visual moments with just these kids plunging through, um, you know, plunging through one at a time through the ice and, and drowning, you know, again, not like not bloody or not bloody or horrific in 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 the way that that we're kind of used to seeing from Cronenberg but certainly very visually visually stark and um you know memorable uh in the way that we are used to seeing Cronenberg stuff so lack of body horror certainly interesting um just one of those things that I kind of had forgotten about from this last time I saw this movie but you know the signature the style is still there nonetheless and I also had forgotten how we I forgot in in the in the form of Weezak, Weejack, Weez again I can't Doctor Sam Weizak, Weejack, whatever the Polish guy the Polish doctor his doctor, um, I think it's Weizak. Um I forgot that we were drawing direct, we we're drawing very direct parallels to Hitler and World War Two. I I totally forgot we had a sequence in which uh, in which we get um, you know the the mid nineteen or the early nineteen forties in Poland with the Nazis coming to take over people. And that's how Wysik, uh escapes, you know, his mother sacrifice uh, apparently sacrifices herself, even though uh, Johnny lets her know that she's still alive. It's just very interesting to me that, that this is, this is here considering how this movie and the character of Greg Stilson kind of became um, a little had a little bit of, of a moment a few, a few years ago after Trump got elected and how, the parallels to, you know, a lot of people want to draw parallels to Trump and Hitler and and, and the the Republican Party and the Nazi Party. Um, certainly, there is reason to, but I just think it's interesting how you know, forty years later, this stuff is echoing again. And I just had kind of forgotten that um, that that we were directly talking and directly linking a right wing kind of lunatic um, politician directly to Hitler uh, in this movie. I just, something I had forgotten about. Uh, and the other thing I had forgotten about uh, that, that definitely surprised me was the lack of Greg Stilson um, in this particular movie. You get much more of him in the book, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, you get much more of him in the book. I kind of forgot that he really is, it's in the background um, in the first, I, I want to say in the in the first like 20 to 30 minutes, we get a mention of Stilson uh, from the reporter, I believe that's like our first mention of Stilson. And he's in the background, and obviously, then we see him uh, where when Johnny has moved um, out of Castle Rock to wherever he's living now. Um, you know, we we got the Greg Stilson for senator um, billboard up like right across the street. But I, I kind of forgot that it really takes more, a little bit more than half the movie until we get um, until we get sort of our first experience with. Uh, true experience with Greg Stilson um, when he's, you know, in the house of Roger Stewart. So I, I just, I, for some reason, I, for, I had remembered there being more Martin Sheen in this. Um, 
but it, it, again, it just it could be just the way that um, this particular character and his portrayal had kind of resurfaced and kind of gained relevance again in the last couple of years. Um, you know, after after Trump was elected, that, that could have could be why that's just sort of clouding my um, particular memory of of this movie. And this is again like I, I want to so. I want to say the last time I watched this movie was like in 2009 or 10. So it, it has been quite a while. And so there's, there are plenty of those, like, it, you know, when you watch it now, it's like, well, like what you forgot that someone wasn't in half the movie. Yeah. It's really possible to do that when you don't watch a movie for like 10, 12 years or so. Um, but that's kind of what, uh, just one of those things that just, it just kind of flew out of my mind, uh, from, from the last time I saw it. All right, now a few surprises for They Live. Um, these were a little less surprising, I suppose. Um, they're kind of you'll see they're a little bit more minor. Um, I just I definitely remembered Roddy Piper saying even less. Um, you know he's got he's got one of the most famous lines of, of all time. Um, you know I came here to I came here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. One of his um, you know one of his uh, improvised one liners uh, when he's in the bank scene and. You know, I think it's maybe it's just because of like that sort of that sort of being his his like one line moment and like one of his, you know, one of his most famous one of the most famous pop culture moments of, uh, you know, of the time. And uh, currently I should say maybe one of those famous cult cult uh, pop culture moments of all time is the kick ass and chew bubblegum line. Um, so just in my head, I remember him saying less, but he does have quite a bit of dialogue. Um, so that, that was just kind of surprising. I, I also, I guess I, I guess I should kind of not be surprised by this from any John Carpenter movie, but we hit the ground running quite quickly. You know, after we get to the opening, the opening credits and the opening, um, sort of, uh, montage of, of, uh, Nada walking into town, um, which is, even though it's not explicitly stated, um, we just call it Los Angeles. Um, it's not really, it's kind of supposed to be anywhere, but it's Los Angeles. But after we get past the few opening minutes uh, with the credits um, and, the, and the Carpenter score, and um, you know, very a very Western inspired score, which kind of makes sense with the way that Nada is walking into town, very much like a, a lone raider, uh, a uh, oh god damn it, uh, like like the man from nowhere, or um, you know, one of those kind of like Western characters. Um, the score kind of makes more sense, um, and it works really well with this movie. But anyway, getting off track. Once we get past that part, it you know we get uh, him finding you know looking for a job or whatever, and then you know him kind of landing with the construction crew, and then uh, bingo bango, it's like ten fifteen minutes before we're really hitting the ground running. We get um you know we get the street preacher within the first like five you know what probably minute seven minute somewhere between minute seven. And minute ten, and I think by minute fifteen to seventeen or somewhere in there, we get our first um, our first TV broadcast. Um, you know where they break in and, and deliver the message about uh, you know about people being uh, being subjugated by invisible forces. So I, you know, John Carpenter makes very lean movies. They generally don't exceed uh, very few of them even exceed a hundred minutes. Um, and so I guess. I shouldn't be surprised by this, but it was just like, here's the setup, and bang, we're, we are in the movie. We are in the the thrust of the movie. And I also, I also remember there for some reason being more Meg Foster. I think I, I think this is because of how, again, she is just such a memorable looking human being that I think it's just sort of like I think of Meg Foster being in a lot in a lot of movies a lot more than she actually is. Um, she was in a ton of 1980s movies, of sci-fi and horror movies. Um, I, I, I think really the, the draw, I mean, she's a totally good actress, but I think the, the draw 100% is how eerie looking she, her eyes are that make her like these memorable figures. And I definitely just like remember her being in this movie more, I think, because she is so visually, um, she's so visually remarkable. So just remember there being more Meg Foster, that's all. All right, let's get into some of the similarities now. And I think this is um, really based on um, everything that we've watched so far and the two movies that I've selected uh, for next week. I think these are the two movies that are the least similar. Um, obviously, like I said, we're, they're, they're chosen because they're covering um, you know, two, two parts of the same topic. 
Um, but I think in terms of their direct similarities, they're really kind of share the fewest, but they do share some. So, and I think it's really, it really just boils down to two, um, two similarities, um, in this case, two main similarities in this case. And you could talk about like visuals and stuff like that. Like they share, um, some, uh, a common visual language, um, simply because, um, you know, movie making at that time, especially horror movie making at that time had definitely had some particular, um, you know, particular things that a lot of the directors did and and Cronenberg and, uh, Carpenter were, you know, to Cronenberg and Carpenter were not immune from kind of relying on certain visual language that was popular uh, at this point in time. So there are visual similarities. I don't think they're necessarily necessarily that important, but in terms of the in terms of the story similarities, right? Our protagonists have to sacrifice everything to win, right? So <clears throat> Johnny kind of makes two different sacrifices. Well, makes one sacrifice and also kind of gets robbed uh, right off the bat, right? So after his uh, car accident, um, you know, Johnny's, you know, the fact that Johnny has developed these powers cost him, you know, cost him years of his life, cost him the life that he was supposed to have with Sarah. Uh, You know, if he had just stayed at her house at the beginning, maybe none of this would have happened. But obviously Johnny needs to have these powers then to go on to make the, to go on to make his sacrifice, um, so, you know, after, after Johnny discovers, you know, what, what will happen, what Greg Stilson will do, um, you know, f- launching, launching nuclear missiles and sending, sending the world into uh, a nuclear apocalypse. Um, Johnny has to sacrifice his life and, and he has to sacrifice his name to prevent the apocalypse. I think that's like really important here. Um, you know, it's one thing to be a martyr, uh, for a cause, especially if it's a worthwhile if, especially if it's a worthwhile cause, um, you know, if someone's motivated enough and they think that their their death might stop World War Three, it kind of seems like that's it kind of seems like that's a good trade off. But in the course of stopping World War Three, um, Johnny also has to be also has to become a you know mentioned along along with um, other like kind of famous political uh, political assassins. And people, other people, other deranged people who have tried to kill famous people or who have killed famous people, right? Like he's he's not going to be looked at as a hero because the knowledge that he has of, of the future is is completely uh, unto himself. But but you know he's he's willing to make the sacrifice of his life and his name to prevent any of that from coming through. And it does it does help that it throws a little bit of dirt onto onto Stilson's name. Um, you know when we see him grab Sarah's child as a human shield to protect him from uh, to protect him from being shot. Um, obviously, that uh, changes the whole outcome, changes the whole scenario. And as we see the next time that they that Stilson and um, and Johnny touch each other, touch hands, touch each other sounds weird. So I'm just gonna say touch hands. Um, you know, we see the future with, um, you know, with Stilson committing suicide after being kind of, after being defamed for being a coward and, and whatever else. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Johnny has to, Johnny really has to make a very large sacrifice, um, in both, in both life and reputation of his, both life of both his life and his reputation to prevent, to prevent the apocalypse, the, the apocalypse that only he can see. Uh, and in terms of Nada, Nada has something similar, right? He has to go on a rampage and kill a lot of people. He knows that they're not people in the same way that in the same way that Johnny knows that his actions will stop the apocalypse. Nada can see the truth, and he's killing these aliens, um, you know, who have infiltrated uh, human society. Um, but to most people, it looks like he's just on a rampage, killing killing innocent bystanders. I mean, it really is sort of. It really is sort of a. It feels like we're we're watching a mass shooting. Is realistically what happened? Is what is happening? Um, you know, obviously there's, he you know he pulls punches when appropriate. You know he doesn't shoot any humans. Um, you know we see the standoff with the, with the one cop in the alley uh, who is in fact a person, and he you know he lets him go unharmed, but in order to to sort of get to the point where, um, you know in order to get to this point where Nada can kind of, um, where Nada sees the truth and Nada becomes part of the, part of the resistance. He has to, he has to kill a lot of people or kill a lot of 
enemies and sacrifice his own name as well. You know, he becomes America's most wanted in the process of uh, coming to this, you know, coming to this realization, coming to the truth. Um, in fact, Nada is repeatedly offered a chance to join the side of the aliens. You know, he's he is given the chance to become a power elite, um, a human ally. Um, but he chooses, you know, at best what he is choosing is poverty. And as it turns out, what he actually chooses is death by repeatedly denying um, the offers to to join up, right? Like our first, our first uh, incident is when the police, the two um, alien police uh, stop him and they kind of tell him like, hey, you know, let's, this is clearly just a misunderstanding. Let's figure this out. They know full well that he can see them the way that they actually are. Um, but uh, he's, you know, they're maybe, you know, maybe that's a, you know, that's, a, they're just completely, it's completely duplicitous offer. They're just going to kill him or whatever. But based on, based on what we see later in the movie, when we see, when we see the drifter, um, the drifter at the camp, at the homeless camp, who was sitting there watching TV and, just kind of complaining, you know, complaining about the the break-in and inter- interruptions of the broadcast. Um, we see him later on as as one of the uh, as one of the human allies, one of the power elite. Now, it's very possible that the aliens would have given Nada the same, um, you know, given Nada the same opportunity to become one of them, right? So Nada has to again. So Nada is sacrificing his life, his reputation, and he's also sacrificing the chance to kind of live well. He is he is homeless. He is jobless. His prospects are narrow, um, and someone is giving him the opportunity to kind of turn that around in, in an instant. But it comes at the cost of helping to subjugate humanity, and he's just not willing to do that. So there you go. Both of our protagonists have to sacrifice everything to win. And I think this is this is very very key for both of these for both of these movies and as i mentioned it's key it's a key thing with the body politic in general the power elite need regular people to enforce their rules it's it's impossible unless unless the the power elite are so numerous it, you know have have such a have a numbers advantage essentially there is no way to enforce their their laws, their regulations. There's no way to enforce their way of life without regular people helping them. In the same way that, as I mentioned before, in the same way that in Nazi Germany, um, the Nazi party was relatively small in number, um, but they were positioned to the right place. So they were able to influence more people to, you know, neighbors ratting out neighbors. Um, it, it you know they turned they turned uh, Germany into uh, essentially a police state, uh, a surveillance state, and they did it by by encouraging the regular person to sort of enforce their way of life and their laws, and that's how the power elite has to do things. Regular people need to enforce the rules. So, in this case, um, in the case of, in the dead zone, Stilson has an implied army of people willing to do his bidding. Um, obviously he's got his main body man, uh, who's act- the actor whose name I can't remember. Um, it's like a Kovacs or something like that is the actor's name, but, um, he's got his main body man who is there with him on the campaign trail. And then e- even in the vision, he's clearly one of his advisors, uh, when he becomes president. And this guy is just sort of representative of all the people that, that Stilson, uh, has in his employ, to um, you know, to do his dirty work, to to do his dirty work, and to to sort of leverage every everything he can for into his advantage, right? Like we get the the scene of the newspaper where he's intimidating the uh, the reporter with pictures of him with uh, you know with a young girl, presume and you know, and it's like set up like, hey, by the way, this is the young girl is someone I work with. Clearly, the person taking the pictures is someone that works uh, for Stilson. Um, it's it's you know, and his body man is just sort of emblematic of all the people willing to do his bidding, and you get more of this in the book, which we'll again we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, and then you could even take it to the volunteers for Stilson, right? The volunteer the volunteers are there to spread his message and make him seem more appealing for regular people. Um, you know, there's just you know there's there's a lot of volunteers that are here, as he says, they're fed up with they're fed up with Washington, that are fed up with. You know, he's just like you and I need, you know, he even says like we have this volunteer movement across the across the region that is 
going to help us do some unprecedented things. And that really is really is again, it's a key for it's a key for any politician, um, you know, who wants to get elected, but a key for the body politic to have regular people, even in this case, the, the army of volunteers don't seem to be do, don't seem to be doing anything particularly um, illegal or criminal or anything. But they are making sure that Greg Stilson is front and center for everyone um, in the state of Maine. Um, so, yeah, so the, Stilson's uh, it's a little bit different, but nonetheless, there, is, there are regular people um, there doing the bidding for the power elite in this case. Um, and same for Nada, right? Not everyone Nada sees is an alien. Um, there are sleeper agents. There are sleeper agents well positioned to control regular people. And those regular people then help perpetuate this system that is keeping humanity asleep, um, that is keeping humanity subjugated to the to the whims of these alien these alien capitalists. And and even then, as obviously we, um, you know, in the in the form of Holly, uh, Holly is, you know, one of the most important human collaborators. Um, uh, You know, obviously, she's like one of the gatekeepers at the at the TV station. Um, you know, she's making sure that um, that the the lines of communication to the regular people are constantly open, right? She's one of the most important human collaborators. She is she's a sleeper agent in a really privileged position, um, in other words. Um, you know, and it's and it is implied multiple times, either implied or just stated, that they are relying on a lot of human leadership um, to to make to keep their their hold on certain. To keep their hold on the on the sectors on the business world in the police world, you know, obviously, we see the the first two of the first police that we see are in fact aliens, but then you know the next encounter with a cop is a regular person, but who is doing the bidding because you know he is a regular person doing his job, he just doesn't realize that his job is at the behest of a of a very particular. Um, He's doing his job at the whim of a very particular uh, master, right? Um, and we can get into the, we could definitely get into the parallels of policing um, and how the police are, what the police are actually policing, what they're actually doing in almost every society. But that's uh, that's for another podcast, perhaps. Um, but you see, there that we we have the we have the regular people, and in some cases, maybe some elevated people, but still um, still more or less regular members of society have to either enforce the rule of law or they have to spread the message. They have to do one of the two uh, or both to make sure that the power elite stay, you know, hold on to their power. All right, so let's talk about the differences here. Um, Again, these are, I think, are the two most different uh, movies in uh, in terms of how I paired them. I think these are the two most different. So with The Dead Zone, we are specifically talking about the dangers of one lunatic in a position of power the the damage that someone as they gain as they gain more and more trust and more and more power the damage that this one person could do is the idea here that all it takes is all it takes is one unhinged person in the white house to then drag the planet into a nuclear apocalypse right um so in 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 johnny's again in johnny's vision of stilson's future we see Stilson launching launching nuclear missiles and dragging the world into launching nuclear missiles in response to um, into in, in response to a perceived like global threat. Um, uh, lets the missiles fly, as he said, or he says the missiles are in the air, um, and we see this all happening despite pleas from his uh, defense secretary, who initially just completely denies that he's going to do it until Stilson threatens to cut his hand off. Um, and, and the vice president kind of like, Hey, we, we have a diplomatic solution here. Um, but the, the idea here is that the danger of one person with so much power is, could be, has ramifications way that that reach way, way beyond even what you could imagine. Um, and obviously stuff like the nuclear codes doesn't work, doesn't work unilaterally. Like the president can't just decide to bomb you know, it, Biden couldn't just decide to bomb Russia tomorrow with our nuclear arsenal. Does not work that way. However, having and as we saw recently, having one person in power can enable other people, um, other people to sort of 
try to bend the rules and do things their own way. And it, it really does. It'll really only takes one person to sort of disrupt, disrupt the, the regular processes that were normal, that, that are normal to us. It's also, it is also implied in, in, in uh, the dead zone that um, Stilson's cult of personality has subjugated the regular checks and balances in DC. So it is possible that, um, you know, just the, 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 in the same way that Trump has really grabbed and taken hold of the Republican party in a bizarre way. Um, it's possible that Stilson has done something similar with, um, with the, with both parties in DC possibly that make him irresistible and almost, and almost this, um, autocrat, um, in a system that is, would otherwise design to, uh, be, you know, designed to eliminate that possibility. Um, as I mentioned before, there is, there is more of, there is more of Stilson's psychopathic behavior in the book, The Dead Zone. I think they do a good enough job of showcasing like just how corrupt and how, um, angry and how outlandish he is. I think like they did enough, but the book definitely gets into some details that are, um, very telling about like what. Of who and what Greg Stilson is like our first meeting or the first time we meet Greg Stilson. Um, he's like a salesman. He's much younger, but he's a salesman and uh, he brutally blinds and kills a dog on this sales call and him killing this dog leads to this sort of out of body experience and vision about his political future that leads him down the path to politics. Um, he has, you know, in the movie, obviously we're we're seeing him um, extort and blackmail people, but I mean, he outright has people killed in in the book. Um, his security detail is a violent biker gang. Uh, I can't remember what they're called, um, but his security detail is a violent biker gang that beats people up and kills people for him. Um, in the book, Stilson literally gets into fistfights and beats people up at his rallies, so he is much more. He is much more unhinged than the movie version of Stilson, which I th- honestly I think, considering the, considering that this movie is just about like a hundred minutes long, I think it's enough to show um, you know what they showed of Stilson kind of being bombastic and being loud, um, and then obviously the, you know how he's willing to blackmail and extort people, and then his sort of cowardice at the end of the movie. I think it's enough to. Um, to showcase what kind of person Stilson is. Um, if this movie was longer and we still did, and we still had the same amount of Stilson, I think that maybe we would have fallen short there, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, the dead zone really is more about the, how one, one person can kind of warp and destroy a system from within. If that one person is, finds their way into the right or I guess the wrong place uh, at the wrong time. Now they live again. This is where we're differentiating and, and why we're thinking, thinking about this more of the elite than just strictly politicians because they live. We're making the direct commentary on consumerism and how we're encouraged by the power elite to, buy and consume to keep them wealthy and to keep them and keep them in power they live is a a much more sharp critique on 80s consumerism and how regular people are the victims of a predatory economic ecosystem called capitalism Um, that's really what we're going for here but we are we are hitting how we are hitting on how in order for Excuse me. In order for runaway capitalism to happen, it has to be enabled by politicians and and policy. Like there is just no way for for businesses and companies, especially in the nineteen eighties, um, to get away with what they're doing and the way that they are putting their products in in our faces and the way they produce their products. There's no way that they could do what they do without essentially the blessing of of DC of individual politicians and that's you know we make the jokes about you know politicians are for sale and stuff like that well they are um there's a reason why there's a reason why the nra uh or there's a reason why guns are such an an untouchable issue in in washington 
It's because the NRA is funding so many politicians, both on the left and the right, to make sure that they can continue to manufacture, the gun manufacturers can manufacture guns without needing to stop. Um, because if it, if things, if, if things um, go the way of other countries, like in Canada, like in England, like in Australia, if gun control goes even mildly in that direction, uh, the gun manufacturers will be, will see their profit margins get absolutely slashed. I mean, they will be cut significantly if we even go a modicum towards where other developed countries have gone with their gun control laws. Um, so capitalism is 100% enabled by politicians, but it is this sort of reciprocal kind of nature um, where it, it is the, it's the, you know, the power elite scratching their own backs. It's the politicians scratching the backs of the captains of industry, scratching the backs of the politicians, it, so on and so forth. Uh, it's a, it's a, I don't know, a, a malevolent little um, circle jerk made out of money, basically. Um, but you, in, you know, to get back to the movie here, sorry, I don't want to go off in too many tangents here. But you know, we we get we do get the end speech, um, you know, from the politician who it's like one of the most famous um, one of the most famous uh, sort of pieces of of this particular movie is that uh, is the obey with the with the alien creature in front of the obey sign. Um, you know, that's our politician in the movie. We see him twice giving the speech on TV with the obey sign behind him. And then later to the, you know, the room full of collected elites giving the essentially what amounts to like a quarterly report about how about how the aliens and the human collaborators have done this quarter, essentially. Um, but the end speech by that, by the alien politician mentions how their agenda is being furthered by corrupt political regimes across the world. That the, the only way that it works, um, the only way that they can kind of do what they do is with the assistance of 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 other governments that are are willing to you know are willing to to look the other way and this is exactly how big business functions abroad you know there's a reason why there's a reason why nike makes so much money um because they can open up a sweatshop in brazil have you know 300 kids in a factory work for you know what amounts to a dollar a day and then they can turn around and sell their shoes for 180 dollars here in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world. This is exactly how big businesses function. And the only way that they can kind of do and get away with the things that they get away with, especially in developing countries is to have, is to just basically completely buy out the politicians in those other countries. So, you know, it is sort of, it's, it's a, it's a commentary on that, on that sort of business practice, but how, in the face of you know how it's how it's happening here in the United States too, but in the face of if there was a big enough business, um, be it alien or otherwise, they would in fact completely buy out. Um, they would in fact completely buy out the U.S. government um, because there is no there is no price too high essentially um, for these politicians. Um, and it's you know it's stated again just to sort of hit the nail on the head here. Um, you know, it is stated that um, there are very many important positions in society that have been occupied by the aliens. Probably, if we're if we're kind of if you're tracking the um, some of the broadcasts, uh, probably since the 1950s. But like I said, it's this kind of um, incestuous um, circle of money that uh, that that is keeping the the, the body politic in this case uh, going. So you have politicians, industry owners, media, and the police are all sort of working together to make sure that this system keeps going. That when there are people, clearly there are people, you know, we, uh, once uh, one of the, one of the aliens realizes that, uh, that Nada can see, can see her for what she really looks like, she reports it in. So clearly there are other people that have previously been able to see what's going on. And, you know, that's where the police come in, right? To arrest these people, to, um, you know, potentially possibly kill these people, um, you have the media spreading the, con the continued message, but also spreading the um, spreading the subliminal messages to you know to buy, to stay asleep, to be compliant. You have the industry owners creating an atmosphere in which the aliens can um, you know can produce their message and and um, make their money as much as possible. And obviously, the politicians enabling all of it, um, creating laws that make it friendly for all these um, institutions to sort of do what they do. 
Um, and probably the main difference here. Uh, so while we get some pretty good closure in um, in the dead zone, you know, we we see that we had the vision of Stilson killing himself. Um, you know, over as Johnny's dying. Um, you know, and actually Johnny gets to die, kind of a again a martyr as opposed to being killed by the brain tumor that's going to kill him anyway. Um, and then obviously Sarah, you know, over his dead body tells him that she loves him. So there's like a lot of closure with the dead zone, but because they live is a John Carpenter movie. We get a John Carpenter ending. Um, we don't really get the, we don't really get the, the, the cathartic great resolution that you get from something like the dead zone, knowing that the threat has been killed. What we get is the immediate mission is done. The, we, our heroes have sacrificed themselves. They've killed um, very, you know, people in, in a very important positions, power, um, and they have they have taken the alien signal offline to sort of reveal the the truth to you know we we have woken up people worldwide um, to to reality, but now people have to deal with that reality, like what happens now once we realize that. Not only are aliens living amongst us that they have been controlling and manipulating us for, you know, what seems to be about 30 plus years. Um, there, there is there is just clearly more to think about um, with this particular ending than there is with the ending to the dead zone. The ending of the dead zone is a little bit more neat and clean. This one is now, again, it's a Carpenter movie, so we get a Carpenter ending. It almost it's it's almost ending with a question of what happens next, is really what really what um, a lot of John Carpenter how a lot of John Carpenter movies end. All right. Lastly, here we'll wrap up with a few missed opportunities. Um, I really don't think there's many for either of these for either of these movies. Um, for the Dead Zone, I my big thing is here. I would have liked to have more Greg Stilson. Um, as I you know mentioned some of the stuff that like is in the book, The Dead Zone that fills in this character a little bit more is pretty interesting, pretty wild stuff. Not that I necessarily need to see a dog get brutally killed on, on camera or anything, but I think we could have gotten a little bit more of early Stilson or at least, or at least gotten a little bit more with um, Stilson's thugs um, just kind of further cement just like how terrible of a person he actually is. Um, plus, Martin Sheen does a great job playing this character. I, I just would have really enjoyed having more Martin Sheen on camera uh, than what we got. So, uh, you know, for me, it's just it's just more Greg Stilson. Um, I think you also could have turned up the the gore and the horror a couple of notches. Um, you know, like I said, we got some good we got some good imagery. Um, you know, Frank Dodd's death is pretty good. Um, the the suicide by scissors is definitely gru- especially through the mouth. Like that's especially gruesome. Um, but like I think, you know, and 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 I mentioned I lauded the the scene like with the the girls burning bedroom is is great, it's it's practical effects it looks fantastic, but like I I definitely could have done with a little bit more gore, um I could have done with um one thing that I think would have kind of hit on the on the body horror stuff that Cronenberg normally does, we're told that um you know when Johnny uses his psychic abilities, it um you know it's it's creating this tumor or, you know, maybe the tumor is creating the psychic abilities, whatever. But regardless that every time he does, every time he looks into the future, it's taking a toll on him. I kind of would have liked to have seen much, much more like the fly that like him almost like physically decaying, maybe not as extreme, like body parts and shit falling off. But like, it would have been, especially with the way Christopher Walken looks, I think you could have made him look more gaunt, like look more pale, just like, look more like a person who is in fact dying and, and will, um, will die if they continue to do what they do. So I think you could have, I think there's ways to, um, to kind of turn up the, turn up the volume a little bit on the visual gore and horror kind of stuff. I also could have made do with a little bit more of a picture of the political environment that gave rise to Stilson. I'm not really exactly 100% 100% sure how we do this but it you know it, it does seem like it does seem like he's kind of coming out of nowhere which in the book kind of does happen but he's like a he's like a multi-term congressman in the book like the 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 
the interactions with Stilson and um, and and Johnny take place over like a couple of years. Um, it's it's not it's not as quick, um, you know. Which I think it's supposed to be like a couple of months uh, in the movie. Um, so I would like to have like a little bit more idea of like what what the hell is going on in in Maine politics that gave rise to a fucking maniac like Greg Stilson. Um, so I think again these are. I I think really only the first two are like the missed opportunities and the last one is kind of more more stuff that I just would want more of um that I'm just intrigued by um so we'll call that like a 2 out of 3 there uh for for the dead zone two things that I think are, are legit missed opportunities and one thing that's just like well you know I'm interested in this I think I could do more I could I could make I could have a little bit more of this if if they wanted to offer it to me now in the case of they live I think this movie is, if not a perfect movie, it's very close to one. So I think really what I am talking about are things that I just would like to have more of. Um, I would have liked to have a little bit more of Nada and Frank interactions. Obviously, we get maybe the greatest fight in the greatest hand-to-hand fight in the history of cinema. At least it's got to be top five. Um, It's got to be top three. Um, You know, the, the physicality of it, the brutalness of it. The way that it was, uh, it was very, it was all practical, and the way that people would have, the way that people really, I mean, obviously with flourishes for for a movie, but the way that people fight, right? Like it's it's not really elegant, and not everyone knows, um, not everyone knows kung fu. People would kind of like knee each other in the groin, punch each other in the back of the head when they're not looking, throw each other on the ground, hit each other with objects. Um, that's like how people fight, and you know. Even though we get so really in lieu of more talking um, and getting to know each other, we have like this like seven minute brutal fight that is, again, one of the if not the greatest fight in the history of cinema. I still could have made do with a little bit more of Nada and Frank together. Um, um, I think I, I think we could have I think I also would have liked to seen a few more instances of the aliens showing off the extent of their power. You know, like we, you know, we obviously get various representatives of the of the aliens like in the police and you see plenty of regular people and obviously all the advertisements that have this little messaging. But it would have been kind of interesting to see if, if to see um, glimpses of the aliens influence elsewhere, be it, um, you know, I think actually I think one of the really good ways that they did this was when Nada looks down at the, uh, he's holding like seven or eight dollars in his hand and he looks down in the, um, in the glasses and the money itself has subliminal message on it, like th- that this is your God. And like, I think that stuff was kind of clever and I wish that we would have had a few more of like those kind of moments. Um, again, not ex- 100% sure how to, um, 100% sure how to, how to shoehorn more of those in. Um, you know, maybe, you know, I think just like real quickly, like one scene I'm thinking about when he is at the like employment center or whatever, talking to the woman, it would be interesting if we saw that woman again later in the movie and she's an alien, right? Like that even, even at the, at the lowest levels, there is this alien, this alien force has influence at, at truly the lowest rungs of society. Um, I also would have been, you know, since we are kind of making the comparison to, um, Earth being like a third world country for them, you know, a developing country for them where wherein these mega corporations go to kind of do, you know, to, to make their products and violate laws that don't exist, that exist in the United States, but don't exist over there um, in other countries. I would have kind of liked to have seen what this looks like abroad, some kind of glimpse into another country, um, you know, to see if, you know, to see if are they more discreet? Or are they, I should say, are they as discreet as they are here? Or are they more open about, like, what's going on? Like, that they don't even need to really hide themselves because of the the power and influence that they have um, here in the developed world. Um, you know, there's really no need to, like, hide yourselves in the, in, the, in the developing world in that case. So I would have liked to have seen, like, maybe what it looked like um, outside, of the, outside of the bounds of the United States. Um, but again, not 100% sure how you do that, but I think there, I think it would have just been, it would have been an interesting thing to do. All right. So that's, that is it. That is the wrap up for the dead zone and they live, um, love both of these movies. Um, they live is hands down 
one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I mean, I I made a Christmas card out of out of They Live uh, one year. Um, my my signature black Christmas cards. Um, I made it out of uh, it was a They Live inspired Christmas card. Um, it's one of my all time favorite movies, um, and I I'm actually kind of glad that uh, I got to cover it in this context as opposed to kind of like a straightforward, you know, is this movie good or not? Because this movie is fucking fantastic. Um, there's, like I said, this is like a borderline perfect movie, if not a perfect movie. Um, so I'm glad I got to cover it in this kind of context where we're looking for parallels to um, to political power and, in this case, business power and, and the power of capitalism. So that was really fun. So they live, highly recommend you should go see it if you haven't seen it at this point yet. Dead Zone, really good movie. This is a really good flick. This is a a very interesting and entree. This is a very a very interesting entry into the oeuvre of David Cronenberg, since it is it does kind of stand apart from a lot of his other movies in terms of of the the body horror and the violence. Um, yet still has still has a lot of the signature stuff that he's known for. Still has this great has this great performance from Christopher Walken. Um, I, I love the I love I one thing I, I forgot to mention uh, before. I actually love the way that like the psychic visions. Even though we're even though I think you could kind of make the body horror stuff and that the idea that the psychic visions are hurting Johnny. I actually do like the way that like the psychic visions are like physically taxing on him. You know the way he like flinches, the way he's like out of breath and feels like exasperated by it. Like it's just, it's taking a clear toll on him. Like I love that part of it. Um, side note there, a little trivia from the, uh, from the IMDb Tribune there, um, that whenever, whenever Johnny's flinching while flinching and shaking while he's, you know, while he's reading the, you know, someone's future, um, David Cronenberg is firing a 357 Magnum off screen to get him to flinch. Um, which is so every time you see that um, now you, you'll now you'll like know that off screen um, David Cronenberg was firing a gun full of blanks uh, to get uh, to get that sort of spontaneous reaction from Christopher Walken. Uh, and it was Christopher Walken's idea, apparently. So um, love that little bit of trivia there. But the Dead Zone, really great movie, really interesting uh, bit of Cronenberg's filmography. Um, I would say certainly not a I don't even think this is necessarily a, a it's it's a it's a borderline cult classic. It's like right up there and a very, um, a, a very, um, especially in more recent times, a more politically, a more poignant, um, message about political, um, about individual politicians and individual people, how they can, how certain people can kind of warp and, and twist our political systems for the worse. If, if they are so inclined. Um, but nonetheless, rec- highly recommend to both movies uh, for very different reasons, but um, love them both. Really fun revisiting these. And I'm looking forward, looking forward next week um, as we, as we now leave, uh, leave our second branch uh, of the body politic um, and leave the elites behind as we move now into the kind of the more, the more immediate threat as I'll call it. Um, as we move into the third branch of the body politic and we talk about enforcement and we will be, you know, we'll have a primer episode, a mini-sode, you know, 20, 30 minutes or so kind of explaining how, where the horror is to be derived from enforcement, um, you know, state, state sanctioned violence, um, essentially is what we're going for here. And then we'll wrap up with our final double feature review, which potentially, again, like I mentioned that I reserve the right to um to swap one of these movies out but it might just potentially be a triple feature but for sure i'm going to be watching day of the dead and death watch um, as we get into our final review next week but that's it for now thanks for downloading thanks for listening thanks for streaming don't forget to rate and review subscribe blah 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 all that good stuff and we will catch you next time on the occasionalists